Regardless of what you might think of certain UFC business practices, you have to admit they've done a damn good job over the last 30 years growing the Ultimate Fighting Championship into the premier MMA organization in the world. And although in business it's generally about putting your best foot forward, there have been a few decisions throughout the history of the organization that came with a sizable amount of risk. But who dares wins, as they say, and at times they certainly stood their ground, turned down offers, or outright refused to do business. I mean, let's face it, they found themselves in hot water before. They know that one wrong move can have serious consequences for themselves, the fighters, and even the sport. But that didn't stop them from taking some appropriate risks throughout the years, and we are going to count those down right now. I'm Balian from MMA On Point, and this is the 10 riskiest UFC moves of all time. Number 10. Dana Boxing Tito some of you may know that before Dana White became president of the UFC, he was a manager. His roster of fighters including Chuck Liddell and yes, even Tito Ortiz, and before that as a young lad, he'd fallen in love with the sport of boxing, taking it up in his teens as an amateur. His relationship with Tito, however, deteriorated over the years after he became president, he could no longer be his manager, creating a conflict of interest in a number of ways until a full-blown fistfight erupted between the two whilst on a plane heading for Japan. Tito's time at the UFC continued with some turbulence, and after his free agency period and a win over Vitor Belfort, he was finally able to negotiate a new contract, but insisted part of it included a three-round boxing match against Dana White in order to clear the air. The president pulled in legit coaches and sparring partners to get ready for the fight, convinced he would handle Tito with ease given his experience. The fight was cancelled multiple times due to injury and the Nevada State Athletic Commission having to sanction it after they got wind of the action. On the day of weigh-ins, Tito was a no-show, apparently pulling out after Dana reneged on their agreement to air the fight live with money on the table. Still, what's the best-case scenario here? Well, um, there isn't one. Talk about risky. If Dana wins, your UFC champion can be beaten by the organization's president. This isn't WWE, people. And if Tito wins, what? A professional fighter? KOs someone who's in charge of managing the relationships of the promotion. Yeah, it's not exactly a logical train of thought to follow. Thankfully, it never took place. Would have been a fun fight, though. Number 9. Turning down Fedor and M1 Global some combat sports fans will refer to Fedor as the one that got away from the UFC. But if you ask Dana White, he's pretty much adamant that's not the case. He had offered the last emperor what he called the best deal of his life whilst he, the Fatidas, and Fedor's management team met on the island of Curacao. A rumored $30 million was offered to sign Fedor to a UFC contract, along with the purchase of M1 Global, a Russian MMA promotion that Fedor's management team was the head of. To Dana, it was a great deal, but apparently the Russian management team didn't feel that way, leaping from their chairs and laughing in the face of Dana, who reminded them, You're one punch away from being worse zero. And so they walked away from signing the pound-for-pound -pound best fighter on the planet and a potential fight with Brock Lesnar, one that surely would have sold millions. But shortly after, Fader would lose three in a row and the epic winning streak would be broken. Still, definitely a risk to walk away from potentially the biggest signing in UFC history. And the way some hardcore fans bang on about it, clearly never having Fader compete in the UFC has left them wounded, especially as the last Emperor went to compete in rival promotions, giving them a ratings boost. Pretty risky to let such a big fish swim in another pond, but if you ask Dana, everything worked out as it should. Number 8. The Early Marketing the original conception of the Ultimate Fighting Championship was a chance for the Gracies to prove that their martial art was superior to all others. And well, they basically did that, until everyone realized that it's not about one specific martial art, but being able to blend and use them all together effectively. But that wasn't exactly the marketing strategy they used in the early days. No, it was all about the extremes the UFC offered. The cage, no gloves, blood, broken limbs, no rules, bro. It was an extreme sport, one that glorified violence. And yeah, this certainly worked as a marketing strategy initially. The VHS tapes treated like hardcore pornography questioned by 
by much of the general public as if this was even legal added an edge to the product that the hardcore fanbase lapped up. But of course, this didn't come without some risk. Once actual sanctioning was required and the commissions needed to be contacted, all they'd seen of the sport was the blood-covered posters and canvases. When compared to the sport of boxing, the UFC might as well have been a fight club. They were shut down state after state, the sport being declared illegal across the US and in several countries around the world. Even now, places like France have only just opened up to the idea of MMA, and it took New York 23 years to be the 50th state to legalize the sport. You'd like to think that's all behind us now, but I'm sure you've tried to explain the sport to the uninitiated and are still often met with the grimace of concern when explaining the rules. Yeah, the earlier marketing certainly didn't help with that unless you were already a bloodthirsty degenerate like me. Number 7. Turning Down TV Offers Dana White has been the president of the UFC for over 20 years now, and if he didn't have the business experience to head an entire organization when he started, he certainly does now. But that didn't come without some difficult decisions along the way. Securing the right television deal, as Dana put it, had been something he'd been trying for a few years, beginning in the early 2000s negotiating first with HBO, who in turn ran their own boxing events, having at least some experience in the combat sports world. At the time, the UFC broadcast went out on Spike TV and on pay-per-view, but HBO wanted to control all of the broadcast entirely, something Dana White was not keen to agree with. Eventually, negotiations failed and Dana continued to tell media that he wanted the best deal possible and he would talk to everyone in order to get it. Still a risky move to turn down such a large platform and household network. Riskier still was when negotiations with CBS started to deteriorate and eventually, once again, they were unable to agree terms. This meant CBS went with rival promotion Elite XC and the announcement that they would air Saturday night shows live on their network became an almost break-or-break moment for the sport in America and it was Elite XC who had the television deal, not the UFC, who ultimately had the bigger roster and the better fights. Unfortunately, Elite XC fell apart after Seth Petrozelli told media he'd been paid to stand and strike with Kimbo Slice. Allegedly. An investigation of the promotion began and the backlash led to CBS pulling their TV deal. They later moved on to Strikeforce as well, all as a result of Dana turning down the network. But the right deal would come along eventually with Fox and then ESPN. Seems like the waiting paid off. Number 6. Sending UFC Fighters to Pride it took a few years for the UFC to become the biggest MMA promotion in the world. That and they just about bought out everybody else. For the majority of the early 2000s, it was the Pride Fighting Championships that reigned supreme in Japan. They had an incredible show and some of the best fighters on the planet. Better than the UFC fighters, though? Well, someone was determined to prove otherwise. Yes, Dana White again. How did you guess? And in what was undoubtedly a risky move, in order to prove the superiority of the UFC athletes, he sent them over to fight in Japan. The event in question was the 2003 Total Elimination Pride Tournament, the format being a hallmark of the organization. Two fighters were dispatched to compete in Mortal Kombat and save Earth from the Outworld Invaders. Oh, wait, sorry, wrong franchise. Both Chuck Liddell and Rico Rodriguez made the trip to Japan, accompanied by Dana White, who claimed the Iceman would win the whole tournament. Chuck's over there and he's going he's gonna to beat up their light heavyweight division. First, however, Rico was sent to take on former heavyweight champion Antonio Nogueira, who had just lost to Fedor. He unfortunately failed to put on a UFC-worthy performance, and Nogueira took the decision. Over in the tournament, Chuck faced a young Alistair in the opening bracket, managed to loop an overhand in and secure a team. KO finish but met Rampage Jackson in the next round and was promptly stopped by the Pride veteran, who in turn went on to get demolished by Silva. The plan was obviously to have the Pride champion Silva face Chuck, but after seeing what he did to Rampage, it's probably for the best he didn't make it to the spot. It was already risky enough sending fighters over and the fact they both got beaten already did enough damage to the UFC, especially at a time when it was extremely financially sensitive for the promotion. Still, it was a fun event. Dana lost a $250,000 bet and Pride in rules. Pride rules. Paid rules. Number 5. Bringing in dubious stars. 
MMA is an individual sport, and yes, the UFC are the biggest promotion, and certainly most people know those three letters better than they know even what MMA stands for, but it is the individual stars that sell the pay-per-views and get fans excited for fights. So the bigger your star, generally the bigger the event. So it makes sense when bringing in an existing celebrity that those numbers will only be higher. The only problem being, of course, is it is rather risky to expose UFC audiences to low-level MMA talent. I mean, aside from the actual quality of the fighting being less desirable to witness, the entire legitimacy of the sport gets called into question especially when, hey, this is the UFC where the best fight the best, not where the most famous people can come to see if they are born fighters. Oh wait, no, of course they aren't. This roster is full of people whose DNA resembles ancient Greek warriors. But that didn't stop the UFC from bringing in fighters who didn't exactly fit the UFC profile. Some signings like Brock Lesnar actually paid off, yes, a WWE wrestler, but also a collegiate athlete the size of a minivan whose short time in the sport racked in pay-per-views and led him to UFC gold. Sure, that works, but their second attempt to cross over the world of pro wrestling and MMA was a complete shambles, as CM Punk spent three years training and was destroyed in both octagon outings. Sure, it showed that not just anyone could do the sport, but it was placed higher on the bill than legit UFC talent, and after his second appearance, the sales weren't exactly as expected. James Tony tried his hand in the octagon, somewhat of a risk if a boxer pulled out a win in MMA, but of course, matched up against Randy Couture, it was unlikely to happen. Kimbo Slice's stint on Tough made it the most watched season of all time, but he was fired after just his second fight, a risk given his commodity and him going free to fight in other promotions, with his MMA ability being limited, perhaps even a sensible one. Celebrity Box is paying off celebrity MMA? Well, we'll have to see about that one. Number four, the Zufa purchase. Despite all his attorneys calling him crazy, Lorenzo Fatita knew that spending $2 million for essentially just the letters UFC was going to be worth it. Eventually. In reality, SEG themselves were on the verge of bankruptcy when the sports media company owned by the Fatita brothers Zufa purchased the Ultimate Fighting Championship from them. It was actually Dana White who told them this and that they were looking for a buyer. He had been managing fighters at the time. One month later, it was undoubtedly a risky venture that they purchased the organization and named Dana president. And things didn't exactly get off to a great start. It was a bleak era for really the survival of MMA in America. Living show to show, John McCarthy described himself thinking often, this is the last time, this is the last year. They had been unable Able to get sanctioned in multiple states, had been taken off of pay-per-view, and ticket sales weren't stopping the flow of cash leaking out of the promotion. At its worst, an estimated $45 million in debt. But after managing to secure sanctioning in Nevada, helped by Lorenzo's ties to the Nevada State Athletic Commission, they returned to pay-per-view with UFC 33, which turned out to be one of the worst events of all time, but later followed it up with UFC 40 that became a landmark event, driven by the rivalry between Ortiz and Shamrock, selling 150,000 pay-per-view buys and keeping the sport alive long enough for the ultimate fighter. Still, what a stressful couple of years that must have been. Number three, USADA. As in any major sport, the topic of performance-enhancing drugs often rears its head, especially when the sport involves two humans trying to physically hit each other so hard one of them goes unconscious. Yeah, PEDs can help with that. The implementation of a more stringent testing procedure would not come without a certain amount of risk to the organization. Following the scandalous TRT exemptions that took place around the 2013 Vitor Belfort era, a blemish had been left on the drug testing policies of the UFC. And with the sport being dragged ever so closer to the spotlight of mainstream sports, the UFC decided to take extreme measures. So on July 1st, 2015, a partnership with drug testing body USADA, the United States Anti-Doping Agency, was put into effect. And yeah, this was pretty risky. A chance that the stars of the sport could be sidelined for an indefinite period of time, entire events and main events could be called off with a positive test, and they were, and the athletes now had to subject themselves to constant check-ins of their whereabouts, and unless you're Tim Kennedy, who doesn't seem to mind too much, had to put up with the USADA officials watch you give your samples to ensure there's no funny business going on. Luke Thomas went on 
on to call the entire anti-doping movement a failure on the Joe Rogan podcast, calling it a repetition of the 1980s drug war movement, claiming that inevitably you will never rid PEDs from sports. In the public eye, the drug testing policies helped clean up its image, but through positive tests and also several mistakes on the part of USADA, many athletes have lost years of their careers. Number two, Fight Island. Amidst a global pandemic, the UFC refused to dig its head in the sand and sit idle with the rest of the sports world. Clearly, the determination of Dana White knows no bounds when literally world leaders are shutting down operations. The president is on the front lines, reassuring the fan base they will be the first organization back in action. And they were. After rumors had surrounded Dana White's acquisition of a fight island, fans could barely contain their excitement with the announcement that UFC events would make a return from the safety of Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi. In perhaps one of their riskiest ventures, they created an isolated bubble on the island, stringently enforced and COVID safety and testing procedures for all staff, media, and athletes that traverse the island. The risk was truly immense. If there had been a COVID outbreak, it would have been an international scandal. Globally, the audacity of Dana White had been called into question. His decision to ignore the procedures being followed by pretty much the entire planet had rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. And if things had gone wrong, you have to imagine it would have been devastating for the promotion's public image. Dana ignored everyone else and went ahead with the Fight Island events, which were a smashing success, especially given that nothing else was on TV at the time. Number one, fighter treatment related to the lawsuit. What started as a grand tournament to discover the best martial art on earth has slowly morphed into a business and now a corporate-owned one. Now it's contracts, extensions, release clauses, championship clauses, and whatever else to keep the turnover high and the costs low. Through its developing years, the question of fighter pay often arose, but given that the UFC weren't exactly a leading sports organization at the time, fighter pay was expected to be lower when compared to other sports. But since the purchase of the UFC for $4 billion by new owners WME IMG, there really aren't any excuses. The current split of fighter pay is around 18% of the UFC's annual revenue. The NBA, NFL, NHL, and MLB all hover around a 50% split between themselves and the athletes. Boxing is another story entirely. But even before this purchase, the years of strong-arming tactics, monopolization of the sport, and negotiating positions led a group of fighters in 2014 to file a class-action lawsuit against the UFC and parent company Zufa, stating, The UFC used improper strategies to dominate the market for MMA fighter services, allowing it to pay its MMA fighters less than half as much as they otherwise would have received. Along with this, they also claim the UFC violated antitrust laws to the detriment of all MMA athletes, leading to the terrible revenue split we have to this day. So what was the risk? Well, I guess you can say the way they've treated the fighters over the years at the benefit of the promotion. The UFC has never been better, but this lawsuit has yet to come to an end and the fighters are seeking to recover the lost income as damages, which could affect the UFC on a massive scale. Obviously, not every fighter on the roster feels this way. Dana will tell you it's the cost of doing business, but litigations are not at an end and it is a risk that might not pay off. Big shout out and thank you to Max Randall for editing this video. You can follow him on Twitter at Max underscore Randall. Shout out to Ben Rosette and the excellent music he provided during the intro video. His music can be found on streaming platforms everywhere. There is a link in the description and follow him at Ben Rosette on Instagram and on Twitter. Thanks so much for watching today, guys. Remember to like and subscribe. I'll see you in the next one.